You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you today. Mark chapter 8 is where we are, so if you have a Bible, we're going to jump right in. So you're going to want to grab that <clears throat> and have that open on your lap and get that ready. Mark chapter 8. And this is Texas weather right here, huh? 90 degrees last Sunday, and here we are today. This is crazy. Mark 8. <clears throat> okay, so if you've been around for the last few months, we have been working through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And a couple of months ago, we got to Mark chapter 6, where Jesus fed 5,000 men, probably upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people all, um, all said. So that happened in Mark 6, and now we're here in Mark 8, and he is about to feed another 4,000. So we've got kind of a repeat scene going on here. So verse 1 says this in Mark chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 1. In those days, when, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now before we go on, just you might underline that word compassion. Aren't we grateful for the compassion of Jesus, how Jesus meets us in our deepest needs? Aren't we grateful for that? Namely, our deepest need of sin, how how God, through Jesus, meets us right in the middle of that. And then verse 3. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Now verse 4 is really interesting. And this is just kind of another one of those places where you start to laugh with the disciples. Not at them, but with them. We can all relate to what's about to happen with the disciples here. So remember, in Mark 6, what they had just seen, and now you get to Mark 8, and here's what they say in verse 4. And his disciples answered him, how can, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Two chapters ago, they just watched him feed 15,000 people. And now two chapters later, they're just like beside themselves and how this could happen again, right? And, and let me just say this before we move on in, in regards to this. Two chapters ago, 15,000 people, they just watched it happen. Two chapters later, it's like they have forgotten all of that. And so let me just kind of give this encouragement to you to consider. Never underestimate your capacity to be totally blind in any given moment. Are you following that? Like never underestimate in any given moment your capacity to be totally blind to things that you should be seeing. The disciples should be seeing, well, okay, if he just fed 15,000, 4,000 probably shouldn't be that big of a deal. But it's like they have blinders on to all that. So you go on to to verse 5. And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. Verse seven. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he he said that these also should be set before them. And I want to spend our time in verse eight. So verse eight is where we are going to sit today. Verse eight. So they had just set the fish, the few small fish, the bread before the people, and then verse 8 happens. And this crowd of roughly 4,000, and they ate and were satisfied. Verse 8, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. So in verse 8, They ate and were satisfied. 
I want you to see that in story form this morning, in st- that's in story form what God offers every single person in this room. The ability to come in this morning and to eat and be absolutely satisfied. So I want you to see verse 8 as a metaphor. So, so the metaphor goes like this. It's a picture. Verse 8, you have people that are, are physically starving. It's been three days since, they, since they've eaten, and there's like no sight of anything that's going to give them nourishment. They are in a deep, desperate situation. They need nourishment. They are starving to death. And in in verse 8, God comes and meets them right in the middle of that. They eat of what God gives, and they are satisfied. I want you to take that physical picture and let it be a metaphor this morning for what Jesus is offering every single person in this room. That just like these people, on a spiritual level, we all are spiritually hungry. Our hearts are are, are in need of nourishment and satisfaction. And this passage is going to point us to the one this morning that if we will go there and we will eat, the Bible's going to say this about it. You can be satisfied too. There can be seven baskets of satisfaction left over for you this morning too. So I, I want to spend the morning trying to convince you, trying to convince you that God is actually for your heart being satisfied and that God is the only one who can do it. I want to spend the morning trying to convince you of that, that that little ache for satisfaction that's in you, that that God has put that there, and that he is the only one that can actually quench that thirst that's put in you. Okay, so with that said, I'm going to come at this from a couple different angles, and let me start here. This idea of eating and being satisfied, let me start here. Number one, we are all on this search for satisfaction. We're all on this search. This is a, a... universal human reality that every one of us in the room, we are all searching for what's going to satisfy our soul. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says it like this, that God has put eternity into the heart of man. And in other words, he has hardwired us with an ache in our soul. Like God has, he he made you with a void right in the center of you that that could only be filled by him. Like he made you with that sort of a void. He, He Maybe you can think of it this way. When, when God created you, God created you with a thirst deep in your soul. He created you with a hunger deep in your soul. This is how God has made you. And in light of that whole being there, that, that, that ache being there, that hunger being there, that thirst being there, here's what it does to every human being. It sets all of us on the search for what's going to satisfy that ache, for what's going to quench that thirst that is put there. That, that thirst and that ache and that hunger in your soul, it has made all of us joy seekers, joy hunters. It has put all of us on the search for satisfaction. Now, Blaise Pascal, he was alive a few centuries ago. He, um, brilliant mathematician, French guy, um, best known for his book, The Pensées. Listen to, he picks up on this. And listen to how he describes this universal search for satisfaction. That every human being, we're all, we all share this in common. We have this deep ache in our soul, and we are all looking for the place that will satisfy that deep ache. Listen to how he says it. This will be on the screen for you. He says it this way, all men seek happiness. All of us do, he's saying. He says, this is without exception. In other words, it's a, it's a universal human reality that we are all seeking. And I'm just going to use these words synonymously this morning. Satisfaction. We're all seeking to have our hearts happy and satisfied and joyful. That is every one of us. We are all seeking that, he's saying. 
All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, like, and, and if you just look across humanity, we've got a lot of different ways that this, this search for satisfaction is playing itself out. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. They will never take the least step but to this object, namely your satisfaction or happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who, listen to this, hang themselves. He's saying that we are all, and by the way, this squares perfectly with the scriptures, that we are all joy-motivated people. That is all of us. When it comes to like this path or that path in our lives, here is how we make the decision. And we don't think of it this way because we don't take time to stop and think about it. But what pushes us to this path and not this path is because we feel like this path at the end of the day will deliver the most joy. It's going to give us the most of what we want. It's going to deliver with the most happiness. We are all joy-motivated people like that. We're all searching for, for that thing that's going to give us the most joy. And when we find it, it's going to push us in that way. That, that's the way we make all of our decisions. Let me just play this out because in this, in this quote, he's saying that even men who hang themselves, that's how they're making their decision. So, so let me try to make sense of that. If you, and I've used this illustration to kind of describe this before, but if you went out in the parking lot today and as you're getting into your car, somebody pulls up to you and says, uh, they point a gun at you and say, hey, give me your wallet or I'm going to shoot you. Now, in that moment, your options are limited. You, you can't do the full range of options. So, so you're, you're like option A and option B are very limited. So option A and option B, you might think of them like this. Option A, I don't give him the wallet and I get shot. Option B, I give him the wallet and I live. Now, why is it that all of us are going to go option B? Because that's a lot, giving that wallet, although it costs us something up front, like it costs us like whatever's in that, credit cards, money, whatever's in it, it costs us that. That is a lot better trade in light of like us getting killed right there, isn't it? So, so it pushes us to that option. We're, that's a joy-motivated decision. When we're looking at that, we're saying, what is going to give us the most bang for the buck? Where is our joy going to be found? And it's in giving him the wallet in that moment. Now, let's apply this to the person that is thinking about sadly committing suicide. He, he's saying that they might not describe it in these terms. That's exactly what's happening even in that moment. So option A for a person committing suicide might be this, to continue life in the misery of what life is right now. That's option A. Option B, ending the misery. Now, in those limited options, what pushes people towards suicide, sadly, is they actually think that ending the misery promises more joy for them than actually staying in it. See, we're all, the point is we're all joy-motivated people. We are all on the search for satisfaction. And we've got a million different things that we're pointing that and aiming that search toward right now. But the point I want you to see is that every one of us, the Bible is assuming this right up front, says it in Ecclesiastes 3, that eternity is put into our heart, that we are all searching for what is going to satisfy that ache and that void and that abyss in us. That's point one. Now it comes to point two. Point two. And this is, this is what's shocking. Now that, the first part isn't overly shocking because if you just look at yourself, you're going to see that, yeah, like I actually do care about joy in life. I, given all the options, I would rather be happy than not happy. I, that, that makes sense to us, but this is what I find does not make sense to most people. Point number two is that God is actually more serious about your satisfaction than you are. 
Like we're all on the search for satisfaction, but the Bible is going to show us that God is actually more concerned with that and more serious about your satisfaction than you and I are. So I, I spent eight years doing student ministry. And every now and then I still have flashbacks of like seventh graders on a sugar high. It's like some sort of post-traumatic stress syndrome of like eight years of student. It just does that to you. But in eight years of student ministry, one of the things that I found that, that I was continually having to do, like I, I would even say this was one of my main aims in the context of student ministry that I was continually trying to convince students of. And by the way, now pastoring for like adults for four years, it's no different. I feel like I have the exact same aim, all, like pastoring adults and pastoring students. But the, but the aim is this. For, for teenagers, I was continually trying to convince them that God was not out to steal their joy. That God was not like against them being fully satisfied people. Like here's the paradigm that I found that almost every teenager lives with and for that matter, almost every adult lives with. The paradigm goes like this. Here is path A this way. And we'll call that like the path toward God. Like this is going to be living for God, loving God, running after God, doing this whole thing of pursuing God. This is path A. And this is path B this way. This is, this is God over here. And this is your joy and pleasure and happiness in life over there. So, so it sets itself up to be like opposite directions. So, it, so here's how it works. I can either go after God and I can get God, but I miss the joy part, the happiness part, or I can say no to God and actually eke out a little bit of happiness and joy in life. So, so this was the, the paradigm that I found myself continually having to fight against. That it was either, in, in the minds of most people, students, us, it was either I go after God and forsake joy, or I forsake God and go after like joy and happiness in life. And, and here's what, what I just found myself having to say continually over and over. Those two things are the same pursuit. It's not like an either or thing if you're a Christian. Like the road toward God is the road to your joy. And the road to your joy is the road toward God. Like if you want God, then, then you get joy. And if you want joy, you're going to get God. Like it's all one in that direction. I, I've just found that it's shocking to most people to know that when they run after God, that is your only chance of getting that deep thirst in your heart actually satisfied. That God is actually more serious about that than you are. This is what God wants for you. Maybe you could say it this way. God wants that ache in you scratched. And sat he wants that hunger satisfied. God is all about having that thirst in you quenched. Now, let me try to make the biblical case for that for just a few minutes. Because I found that like we need like reorienting around like this view of God. Like, like God actually cares about that? Yeah, God does care about that. God wants you to be fully satisfied people. He wants your heart overflowing with pleasure and satisfaction. God is all for that. Now, let me just try to convince you of that real quick. I'm going to give you like 10 or 11 statements with verses to go on each one of these. And by the way, John Piper has done a ton of great work on this. Um, I would encourage you to read any of his stuff. He calls it Christian hedonism. That as a Christian, we should be all about hedonism, pleasure seeking. We just got to make sure we're seeking for pleasure in the right things, the things that actually deliver it, right? So, so I'd in encourage you uh, to, to read all of his stuff on it. But let me give you 11 statements, 10 or 11 statements that kind of summarize some of the Bible's teaching on this and verses that support it. Number one, in light of this, like God really being serious about your joy, like God is all for your heart being absolutely satisfied. Statement number one, Jesus' aim in all he taught, 
So Jesus is teaching. His aim in teaching is the joy of the people listening to him, the joy of his followers. Listen to how he says it in John 15, 11. This will be on the screen for you. And by the way, you don't feel like you have to take all these notes. I'm going to post this on the city this afternoon. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, I have taught to you. These things I've spoken that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Like, like Jesus is actually for your joy being full. Like your heart being overflowing with satisfaction. Jesus is for that. That's why he's teaching. That's why he's ministering. This is what he's doing. Now, before we go on, I think it's worth nailing down, like, what is this joy that we're talking about? What is that? I'm going to borrow a definition from a guy named Sam Storms, pastor, author. Here's how he defines it. He says, what is joy? Here's his answer to what is joy. This joy that we're talking about when Jesus says, I want your joy to be full, that joy he's talking about is this. It's a deep, durable delight in God that ruins you for everything else. The joy we're talking about is a deep, durable delight in God that absolutely ruins you for all else. It's deep. It's not, it doesn't live on the surface, kind of in the shifting sands of circumstances. It's durable. It, it, it survives the best of times and the worst of times. And it's delight. Like God is actually for that sort of joy and delight and pleasure and satisfaction. And here's the good news about that satisfaction. It puts everything else the world has to offer out of taste. It ruins you for everything else. It's that good. That's the sort of joy that Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you into that. This is what I want for you, for you to have that sort of deep, durable delight deep in your heart. Second statement. So first one is Jesus' aim and all that he taught was the joy of his people. Here's the second one. Joy is what God fills us when, when we, if, what, what God fills us with when we trust in Christ. So you believe in Jesus, what you get is joy in, in, in return for that. This is how he says it in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So, so believing, you get all joy and all peace. Third statement, the kingdom of God is full of joy. Like the kingdom of God, like when it sits on a person and, and lands on a place, joy gets pressed into these people. This is how he says it in Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of, of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace. And here it is. And joy in the Holy Spirit. Kingdom of God, when it lands on a person, place, joy is produced. Here's the next statement. Joy is the fruit of God's Spirit within us. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And here it is. Joy, satisfaction, a happy heart, a deep, durable delight in God. It's joy and peace. God is so serious about your joy that when you become a Christian, he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of you to actually bring that joy about. That's how serious God is. Here's the next statement. Becoming a Christian. So, so here's what it means to become a Christian. It's finding a joy that makes you willing to forsake everything else to go and get it. I think it's the best way to describe what it looks like to become a Christian. It's you finding a joy, you finding a treasure, you finding a pleasure that is so, so far exceeds everything else and anything else you have ever come across that you are willing to give everything else in your life to go and get that pleasure. That's what it means to become a Christian. So let me just anticipate a potential objection. 
Maybe somebody could say this, but doesn't the Bible talk about like things like self-denial and sacrifice? I mean, doesn't the Bible talk about that? And my answer is yes, it does talk about self-denial and sacrifice, but not in the way most of us think about self-denial and sacrifice. So as a for instance, let me read to you Matthew 13, verse 44. This is the picture of what it looks like to become a Christian. Okay, this is the picture of conversion, of a man or woman meeting Jesus and being saved by Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, when a man f- when, which a man found and covered up. So he finds a treasure, and then this happens. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So he finds a treasure, in his joy he sells everything to go get it. Now would we say that, that there is sacrifice and self-denial in there? I would. He, he is giving up everything he has. He is saying no to a lot of temporary things. So there is definitely self-denial in there. But it's a certain kind of self-denial, isn't it? It's a self-denial motivated by something better. Like, so, so this guy is saying that in his joy, it's not like a self-denial that robs him of joy. No, it's not that sort of a self-denial. It's a self-denial that says, I will forsake all of these temporary and fleeting pleasures over here. And in my joy, I will let go of those so that I can have the one true lasting pleasure over there. So so is the Bible about self-denial? Of course it's about self-denial. But in another sense, it's really important that you get this. It is not about your ultimate self-denial. Here's what God is about. This is what he's showing us in this parable in Matthew 13. That every time God says, hey, get your hand off that, let go of that. You know that little temporary thing that's giving you like the spasm of joy? Let go of that. Why? Not because he's out to rob your joy, but because he wants to give you a better joy. Like this is is the life of a Christian. God's that concerned about your joy. Like maybe we could say it this way, that, that following Jesus may cost you many things and it will cost you many things, but your ultimate joy is not one of them. Jesus is not out to steal or rob your joy. It is in following Jesus that you secure your joy. Maybe we can say it this way, that following Jesus does not cost your joy. That's not how it works. Following Jesus is how you collect it. That's where it is. It's when you forsake all of these lesser things and you run after Jesus, that's when you actually get your joy. So Jesus is that concerned about it. We have another one here. Joy is nourished and sustained by the word of God in the Bible. One of the reasons that God has given you the Bible is to nourish and sustain that little flame of joy that's in you. So so Psalms 19.8 says it this way. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And I hope this will be an encouragement to many of those who you feel like this morning that life is just squeezing you to death right now. Joy will overtake all sorrow for those who trust Christ. Psalms 126.5. Those who sow in tears, like you came in this morning and you are shedding tears. You are sowing tears. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Psalms 30 verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That is the promise for every son or daughter in Jesus. Next, God himself is our joy. Psalms 43, 4, Then I will go to the altar of God to my exceeding joy. Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. And listen to this. In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalms 34, 8. It's an invitation, Psalms 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The Bible wants to convince you that that little search for satisfaction, God is really serious about that for you. And it's, and it's showing you where is that satisfaction, that, that search supposed to be aimed. It's, it's intended to be aimed right at God because God is the only one who can actually fill that. He's the only one that can scratch that itch. He's the only one that can quench that thirst. Next statement, a couple more here. God calls all nations and peoples to join in the joy he offers to all who believe. In other words, there's no like racism with God. There's no like ethnocentrism. God is an equal opportunity joy giver. Listen to how he says it in Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. All nations, all people in all places. Psalm 66, 1. Shout Shout for joy to God, all the earth. God is good with opening that joy up to everyone on the planet. Two more. The whole Christian message from beginning to end is good news of great joy. Listen to how it's described in Luke chapter 2 verse 10. This is the angel is announcing the birth of Jesus. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news. And what is that good news going to produce? What's it going to do for people? Good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. From beginning to end, the message of the gospel is about producing great joy in the hearts of people. And lastly, when we meet Christ at his second coming, we will enter into his indestructible joy. Listen to how it says it in in Matthew chapter 25, verse 23. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what is awaiting every son or daughter of God, the joy of God on full display, fully enjoyed in our heart. This is how serious God is about it. From beginning to end, God is about making your heart absolutely overflowingly satisfied. God is about that and God is serious about that. Now this walks us into our problem. So we're on the search for satisfaction God is really serious about that search, but, but here is our problem. This is the, the universal human problem, is that we aren't serious enough about our satisfaction. This, this is your problem, it's my problem. That we actually aren't serious enough about our hearts being absolutely 100% satisfied. We, we don't take that charge seriously enough. We don't take that invitation seriously enough. It's interesting. I think this is one of the, the most interesting verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 124. 2 Corinthians 124. In 2 Corinthians 124, Paul is clarifying to the Corinthian church what his role as a pastor is. He's telling them, here's what my job, this is, this is the thing God has, has charged me to do for you. This is, this is what I'm doing as a pastor. Now think about that. What, what is the role of a pastor? Here is how Paul answers it to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians one twenty four. He says it this way. This is my job. I am working with you for, now you just fill in the blank, for what? He says, I am working with you for your joy. That's the role of a pastor. Like my job as a pastor is to come beside a group of people and to work with them so that their heart will be fully satisfied, fully content, overflowing with delight, deep, durable delight. That is the role and the job of a pastor. Now, it makes me ask the question, 
I mean, Paul calls that work. Now, I think work is generally kind of associated with something that's hard to do. It takes effort. It takes, you know, grit and all of that to produce it. And Paul is saying it actually requires work to help you get your heart 100% satisfied. That it actually requires effort and work to, 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 for, like for your heart to be full of joy. That actually requires work. Why is that? Well, why does it require work? You might think of it like this. Why does it require work? Because we are half-hearted searchers. We're half-hearted in the searching. That like that God has put in us this, this want for satisfaction, this thirst in our soul. And listen, here is our problem. We are not allowing that search for satisfaction to take us where God would want us to go. We stop far short of what God would, where God would want that to go. We're far too easily pleased. Now let me, let me read a quote by C.S. Lewis that I think brings this into very sharp focus. This idea of us being half-hearted searchers. This is in his, uh, his book, The Weight of Glory. Listen to this paragraph that describes this human predicament of being half-hearted in our search for joy and satisfaction. Here's what he says. It'll be on the screen for you. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Now, Selah on that. See what, God's, see what he's saying there? He, he's saying, in light of all that God promises, namely, satisfaction in him. And, and I think this is like contrary to how a lot of us would think. That when God looks at us right now, he's saying, listen, the problem is not that you have desires that are too strong in you. This, this want for satisfaction is too strong. That the problem is you have squelched it that you have suppressed it, that you have pushed down that search for satisfaction, that that desire in you right now is too weak. That's the problem. And then he goes on to say this. He says, we are half-hearted creatures. And listen to how he, how he describes what it means to be a half-hearted creature. We're half-hearted creatures. Here's what we do. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. The problem is, he's saying, we are far too easily pleased. He's saying that the problem is you're not allowing this, this that, that thing in you that wants to be satisfied, you're not allowing that to take you where God would want that to take you. That you're far too easily pleased. He's saying that the problem is, like, you're allowing that to take you to things like your marriage, things like your career, things like your paycheck, things like money and possessions, things like your house, things like your hobbies. It's taking you to all of those little things, and you really think that you're going to find joy in that. But the problem is, that is like a little kid making mud pies in the slum, not knowing that God is standing over here, waving his arms, inviting you into a holiday at the sea. You think that the problem is, man, you're half-hearted in this. You are not pressing this search for satisfaction and joy and pleasure. You are not taking that near far enough. You're not. You're stopping way too short. And by the way, this is not just our problem. This is also the problem of the people of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God defines all of, and if you've read the Old Testament, the people of Israel have a lot of problems, don't they? 
I mean, they are a messed up people, much like you and I. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, God boils down all the problems of the people of Israel into two things. Now listen to what he says in Jeremiah chapter 2. So it's not just us that are half-hearted, it's them, it's all of us. We are half-hearted people. He says this in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. God says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. So shocked at what? That's the question. What should we be shocked at? Here it is. Verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. What are the two evils? Here's the first one. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Have you ever thought about sin like this? That sin is seeking to have your heart full of anything other than God. Sin is seeking to put your ultimate joy in anything other than God. He's saying that the problem with the people of Israel is I am the fountain of living water. And what they have done is they have forsaken me. They have turned from me the fountain of living water. This is what sin is. It is turning to God or away from God as the source of your satisfaction. God is saying, listen, if you want your heart satisfied, and God is saying, I want that for you. If you want that, you're going to have to come to me. And what sin is, is forsaking God and pushing God away and saying, no, God, I'm not going to look to you for my satisfaction. That's number one. They've turned from God from their source of satisfaction. They've forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. And here's the second one. And they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that do not hold water. So in one way, they have forsaken Jesus, forsaken God as the source of their satisfaction. And when they did that, they turned to other things to try to find that satisfaction. And, and he calls it here broken cisterns. In other words, these things are, are cisterns that are broken. They can't hold water. In other words, that joy that you're looking for in them, they don't contain it. They can't hold it. Like you're demanding things out of these, these broken cisterns that they don't have. They don't have the capacity to deliver on. So as if, for instance, your marriage, it's a broken cistern. Like it's a wonderful thing, but here's the problem. If you're demanding that your basis for your joy and satisfaction in life is going to be found in your marriage, it's broken. It can't do it. It can't deliver what you're asking it to deliver. If you're asking your career to do that, if you're asking for the next purchase to do that, if you're asking for a new house to do that, if you're asking for a new circumstance, kind of a change in circumstance to do that, if you're asking for kids to do that or a marriage, it, it, it doesn't have the capacity to hold it. It's a broken cistern. And God is saying, when are you going to wake up and look to me as the source of your satisfaction? See, our problem is, is, is that we are half-hearted searchers. And, and here's the, the backside of this, is this quest, this search for satisfaction, here is how God has set it up to work. That search for satisfaction, that search for fulfillment, that search to kind of quench that, that thirst in you, that search is intended by God to lead you to God. That's what it's meant to do. Now, okay, let's just take a second to condense all of this here. Now think about how God has wired the world. This just shows you the wisdom of God in this. So over here, God has wired you to be on the search for satisfaction. He put a hunger in your soul, and he knows that that hunger in your soul is going to move you to find what can fill that. He's, he made you with a void in you, and he knows that for all of us in the room, we are going to be a people who try to find things to fill that void to quench that thirst. So he has made us that way. Now watch just the wisdom and the mercy of God here. 
God has given us appetizers of joy. So he's given us things like marriage, things like your kids, things like your career, things like money and possessions, things like your health. He's given us all of these things as appetizers. Listen, none of those things can actually fill you. That's the job of the main course. The appetizer's job is just to wet your mouth for the main course, to get you ready for the main course. It's just to prepare you. Maybe you can think of it this way. All of these things like marriage and career and sex and all of these things, they are meant to be signposts that point you to the destination of God. They are meant to be appetizers who prepare you for the main dish of the joy of God. But our problem is we love to turn signposts into destinations. So I heard it illustrated this way one time. A guy used the imagery of just imagine yourself loading up your family. You put them in the minivan and you drive to Orlando. You're going to Disney World. And you get 100 miles outside of Orlando and you come up to a billboard that has all the Disney characters on it. It's got Minnie. It's got them all. They're all up there. And just imagine you as the dad, you turn around and you look at everyone in your van and you say, we're here. We have, we've made it. And you get everyone out of your car. You get your tents out. You get everything out and you set up shop right there at the sign. And listen, th- that's the picture of what we do. We take the signpost, the things that are supposed to point us to the destination of God, things that are really good. They just can't deliver the sort of joy that we demand from them. And we set up our tent there as if they will deliver it, demanding that they do what they cannot do. And God is saying, listen, that will never work. All of those are appetizers. All of those are little mercies. You know, like when you bite into a good steak, you know that moment right there when you're like, I did not know a piece of meat could be that good. You know, that moment. In that moment, that is a signpost to point you to a God who created something that good. And in that moment, we're supposed to have this thought. If if God created a steak that is that good, how good must God be? See, that's what a signpost is meant to do. Point us to the main dish of God. The main dish of joy being God. This is what all of marriage, your career, this is what all of these things are intended by God to do. Not to, be, not to be destinations. They are signposts to point you to the destination of God. I love how C.S. Lewis put it in just a really succinct way. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now just sail on that. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that is exactly what the Bible says. This is why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You come and eat me, you will be satisfied. You will never thirst again. This is why the Bible says in Psalm 1611, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. This is why there's an invitation in Psalms 34, 8. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good, that he alone can satisfy you. Maybe if I could just boil this down into a simple phrase, here it is. Here's what I'm wanting you to see and get today, that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy and quench the thirst of your soul other than God Almighty. There's nothing else that can do it. So so let me just apply it for a few minutes and then we'll land the plane here. 
to varying degrees, like this is the angst of this morning for me, to varying degrees, we have all come into this room and we have a blank in our life. I could say, if I can get this, then I'll be okay blank. Like we all came in the room with that sort of a blank. And I don't know what yours is. I don't know if it's a new house. I don't know if, if it's a car. I don't know if it's a, maybe it's a, a marriage. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's kids that actually obey. I mean, I don't know what your blank is, but here's the truth. We all have a blank. And what I'm trying to like hold before us this morning is that if anything other than God is your blank, you are destined to disappointment. You're destined for it. That nothing else other than God can quench your thirst. And so whatever it is that you're looking to right now, if I could just get this, then I would be okay. Make it, I just tell you, you're chasing, you're chasing a dream that doesn't exist. It, will, it does not have the capacity to make you okay. Only God can. I, I was reminded uh, last night as I was thinking about this of an interview I saw with Tom Brady. Um, this has been several years ago. I think it was in 2009, right after he had won his third Super Bowl. I know we're in Dallas. Do y'all remember what Super Bowls are? They're like the things that like a professional team might win at the end of the year. They're those things. <laughs> hey, don't judge. It's just the truth. I know sometimes it's hard. Um, so, so he's doing this interview on 60 Minutes. And, uh, and now, now think about this. He's just won his third Super Bowl. He, like, he's at the pinnacle of everything. If he wants a woman, he can have them. If he, he's got all the money he could ever possibly want. He's got all the success that he's ever possibly imagined getting. If you picture like the chase for the end of the rainbow, like hoping there's going to be a pot of gold there, he's one of the few people that actually make it to the end of the rainbow. Now, I want you to see how he describes it in this interview. He gets to the end of the rainbow. He's got all of these things, fame, fortune, everything he could possibly imagine wanting. And here's what he says. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, why is that? I've got everything the world has, but it's still like, there's got to be something more, he's saying. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is, this is just what life is. This is it. You've got it. And, and then he says this, I reached my goal. I, I got the dream that this is my life. And I think to myself, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. Can you just hear that from a guy that actually got to the end of the rainbow? That if you got whatever your blank is, if it's anything other than the God, can I just tell you, it's going to leave you in the same place. You're going to be saying with him, you're going to be saying the exact same thing. It just is not all that it's cracked up to be. Surely there's got to be more than this. And this is my, this is what scares like me for us in the room is most of us are never going to make it to the end of the rainbow. Most of us are never going to have that sort of success. Most of us are never going to be in a point where we've got more money than we could possibly imagine knowing what to to do with. Most of us are never going to get there. And so my fear is is that we're going to live our life on this constant pursuit of the end of the rainbow, thinking it's going to deliver something that has no capacity to deliver. And we're going to waste our lives searching for it. When God is saying, holding up his hands over here, saying, if you will just come to me, I'll give it to you. If you'll just look to me for it, I'll give it freely to you. That is the great news of the gospel in this moment. Is it because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? He has done everything needed to pave the way between you and God so that you can actually go to God and get the pleasure that your heart wants. 
to get the joy that your heart wants. Maybe we could just summarize the invitation of today with Isaiah 55. Here's the invitation of the morning. This is what God is looking at every one of us in the room and saying, you can have this. Here it is, Isaiah 55, verse 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, and we're all thirsting. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you spend your labor for that which does not satisfy? What a great question for us to answer this morning. Why are we spending our wills chasing things that at the end of the day do not pay off? And here's the invitation. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food, namely God. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.